From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. If only doctors knew then what they know now. As the pandemic nears the one-year mark in Colorado, we'll talk with leading experts on the novel coronavirus. What did doctors get wrong and right in the early days of the pandemic? And what does that teach us for the future, from testing to vaccine distribution, ensuring equity to fighting misinformation? Plus, the fight to keep Space Command in Colorado. We kind of knew they were our biggest competitor all along. And a federal court recognizes the sacrifice of the crew of the USS Pueblo more than five decades later. The Pueblo is unfortunately not a very well-known story uh, among most Americans. Then, recent engine failures raise new questions about airline safety. Mayday aircraft uh, just experienced an engine failure. Need to turn immediately. Pandemic or no pandemic, snow or no snow, you're going to leave the house eventually. And when you do, the roads had darn well better be good. That's what we're talking about in this week's Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Transportation. Why it's such a long-running problem in Colorado. And why some lawmakers think this is the year to solve it. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Doctors and scientists have learned an incredible amount since Colorado identified its first COVID-19 case one year ago. They refined treatments, public health recommendations, and vaccines in record time. And there's still more to learn. So looking back, what did experts get wrong early on? And what does that teach us for the future? We're joined by two doctors deep in Colorado's fight against COVID-19. Dr. Michelle Barron is Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University of Colorado Hospital. Dr. Barron, welcome. Great to be here. Dr. Anuj Mehta is pulmonologist and critical care physician at Denver Health. He also serves on the governor's Expert Emergency Epidemic Response Committee. Dr. Mehta, glad to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Barron, is there something about this particular virus that you kick yourself for not taking seriously enough early on? You know, I think we were certainly aware of its potential, but I don't, especially comparing it to the original SARS that had an outbreak um, in Toronto. And I think I kick myself just not being able to predict the future, I guess. <laughs> A thing that we all wish that we could do. Dr. Mehta, if there was just one thing that you know now that you could have known early on, what would that have been? Oh, the list is so long. Um, but I think on a very general level, our thought about how to approach patients in the intensive care unit, the patients who are the sickest with COVID, um, has really changed. We've done a 180 on a lot of our thoughts um, in terms of the medications we use and the approaches. So um, that's true of, of all of medicine. I wish I had the knowledge that I have today. I wish I had it six months ago. Right. Treatment now looks very different. Looking back, is there something specific about the virus that you or others got collectively wrong last winter or spring that something that led to the virus spreading more quickly than it could have? Dr. Barrett, I'll let you answer this one first. <laughs> I think we're both waiting for the other. Um, yeah, so I think, again, I think the appreciation for the uses of masks. I think at the beginning, obviously, we knew the context of using masks in the clinical settings and we were using them, we'd used them before, but I don't think, I certainly didn't fully appreciate the impact of masks by the public at large. 
and how that could potentially help limit spread. There was just not a lot of data specifically using masks of different types in the general population to limit spread of a disease. Um, and I think that's something that caused obviously a lot of confusion, a lot of mixed messaging, and certainly didn't help people with trying to figure out whether it was a good thing or a, or a bad thing, but certainly now has shown to make huge differences. And Dr. Mata, I'd like to get your thoughts here too. We were told by many experts that masks might not be beneficial at the beginning of the pandemic. Should we have erred on the side of caution? Did we have more evidence that they might have slowed the spread if the people were told? I think it's important to remember that at the very beginning of the pandemic, some of the recommendations that the general public shouldn't be wearing masks wasn't based on the virus itself. It was based on the extreme shortages we had in terms of masks. And we knew that the limited supply needed to be in healthcare um, settings where people were directly caring for patients with COVID. And so really, frankly, in March, there weren't enough masks for the general public. And if the general public has started purchasing it, purchasing them en masse, there wouldn't have been enough in, in the hospital. So I don't think it's that we actively said masks are not a good idea. Um, I think it was um, a combination of we don't know what the benefit is for this specific virus, combined with the knowledge that if everybody was wearing masks as they are today, um, people in the hospital, in long-term care facilities and nursing homes would not have had it. And I honestly think that we would have seen a lot more healthcare workers getting sick and potentially dying. So that initial recommendation, um, I don't think was based on um, just not thinking that the virus wasn't, masks weren't important for the virus, but also it was a supply decision. There were a number of areas where supplies were slow to ramp up. I'm thinking of testing. The number of COVID-19 tests being done nationally took a long time to ramp up and in Colorado. Could that have been smoother, Dr. Barron, or was it inevitable that there would be a slow start with a virus that is so new? I think you can always argue that things could have been smoother. It's always the retrospect of looking at things that you always think, huh, that was a decision we should have made. I think there were obviously some speed bumps at the beginning in terms of having the assay being generated at the CDC and then some issues with that. Um, I think, again, we just we know what we know now. Um, if we had thought it through in terms of how pandemics can occur, we would have hopefully reached out more to hospital labs and commercial labs to try and develop these assays concurrently or develop them in-house just as quickly so that we would have more bandwidth rather than relying on the strained resources of the health department to try and do it all. Dr. Mata, what about you? Your thoughts on the testing process? And a year later, how do you see testing and contact, contact tracing? I, I completely agree. I think that early on, we fully relied on public health departments. And in our country, um, and Colorado is no different, we have drastically underfunded public health um, for several decades. And so this massive task was offered to them when really potentially, you know, universities and hospitals were maybe better um able to launch um, in-house testing. And that's, that's what we've seen is that the majority, a lot of the testing now is done by you know, the University of Colorado and their different hospitals, Denver Health, National Jewish, other institutions. Um, and I think that type of recognition um, that we needed to have these types of assays deployed more widely would have been beneficial early on. Um, I think that testing remains to extremely critical. It's, uh, I think the new thing 
about testing is actually the bandwidth to test for variants, which that actually is quite limited now. Um, so we're, we're a year into it. And one of the more important aspects of testing, which is um, you know, doing a subset of all the positive tests to figure out which variants are predominant in Colorado. That's something that is, has really limited, um, capabilities. And that, and that's a much more, that's more, much more in-depth scientific process. So that's not something that I think was any poor decision-making. That's just the reality of science, but it, testing continues to be really critical. And unfortunately we're seeing drop-offs in testing as people focus only on vaccination, but testing remains really important in terms of uh, controlling the pandemic. And Dr. Mata, you mentioned treatments earlier. What have doctors and researchers learned about treatments that might help us with viruses in the future? So I think that um, some of the early uh, misconceptions that we had, at least in critical care medicine, was we extrapolated data from the SARS outbreak in Toronto, um, the MERS um, uh, uh, epidemic that happened about a decade ago, and applied that type of data because there were some similarities in terms of the virus to uh, to the to COVID. So, for example, very early on, every major society recommended strongly against using steroids for patients with COVID. And now we know that um, steroids like dexamethasone for people that require oxygen or in, in the intensive care unit uh, is one of um, potentially ha- is one of the only medications that reduces the risk of death. And so, you know, I think we always need to. One of the things I've learned is we need to be cautious when we extrapolate data. And then also, I think. You know, people jumped on the bandwagon early on about anything that was potentially beneficial, hydroxychloroquine being a key example. And, uh, you know, I've learned that we really need to wait for good science to um, to uh, to make the best decision for patients. And I don't think, you know, there was harm associated with that, but it was kind of where we did a 180 very quickly between thinking that this was going to be really effective and then very quickly realizing, well, I don't think this is actually helping people. I remember a doctor telling me at the beginning of the pandemic that we're always fighting the last pandemic, so it takes a while to catch up with new information. Dr. Barron, what do you see that doctors and researchers have learned, particularly about ventilators that might help us in the future? Um... I think, again, there were some of the things even without ventilators that we learned how to do in terms of having people lie on their belly uh, even before they reached that point where they would need um, an inter- intervention. And it seems really simplistic in that concept of like lying on your belly, like that really is going to make a difference. But it certainly did seem to help individuals with just um, getting more oxygen into that lung field that uh, was inflamed from the virus. And Yeah, um, it's, again, amazing sort of to Dr. Mehta's point of things that we did early on that we just sort of did 180s on later and said, wow, why didn't we do that from the beginning? But I think it's always easy for us to look back rather than knowing the moment of what is the best thing to do. Let's talk. I think uh, I was just going to follow up on that. You know, one of the things I've learned is, is really rely on things that we have good data for. So this idea of putting people on their belly Um, or prone position is what we call it technically. We've known for several years in the ICU for patients who are um, on a ventilator that have really low oxygen levels, that putting them on their belly can um, save lives, that it improves their oxygen level, but also makes people more likely to survive the illness. That being said, even with good data, we know that um, even before the pandemic, this wasn't done uh, routinely in a lot of hospitals because it's 
logistically a bit more complicated and people have some misconceive, uh, misconceptions uh, about uh, possible complications from mm -hmm. having somebody on their belly. And I think the other thing that we've learned is we really need in a setting like this to rely on things that have really robust data. And so that is things like putting people on their belly, prone positioning when they're on a ventilator. We've now extrapolated that to people who are not on a ventilator should be on their belly. Um, and we're doing really good research now to figure out if that's actually um, beneficial. And there's a host of other things that we've known for years um, are beneficial that I think sometimes uh, got looked over when people were excited about novel treatments like hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, and we didn't focus on the things that we've known for a long time can save lives in the ICU. It's fascinating how much we've learned. And about the minute before we go, let's talk more about the future. Communities hit hardest by the virus have been communities of color. At the same time, the data shows white people are receiving more vaccines. This pandemic, it has highlighted systemic inequity in healthcare, and obviously changing those systems will take long-term work. But is there something we could do differently at the beginning of a future pandemic that would head off some of those inequities? Dr. Barron? I think at the moment, we're all obviously working with community ties to make sure that education is out there regarding safety and efficacy. And really, the idea hopefully is moving forward that we'll continue with these community ties that are so important in terms of the influence uh, that they have on their communities, whether it's through churches or through community centers. And hopefully, this will be sort of the groundwork we can then have in place for the future so that we have those connections. We can continue to work on improving health in those communities rather than just these one-time impacts of offering vaccine or other measures to help with the pandemic right now. I want to thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Dr. Anuj Mehta is a pulmonologist and critical care physician at Denver Health. He's also served on the governor's expert emergency epidemic response committee. Dr. Michelle Barron is medical director of infection prevention and control at the University of Colorado Hospital. Colorado's elected leaders are cheering a new Defense Department investigation into the Trump administration's decision to relocate U.S. Space Command from Colorado Springs to Huntsville, Alabama. But as CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce tells us, overturning that Huntsville decision is far from a sure thing. We kind of knew they were our biggest competitor all along. That's Kathy Bow. She's the CEO of Bowcore, a company that designs software for military, space, and missile defense projects. She started the business in her Colorado Springs basement two decades back, and it's since grown to employ 275 people in the city. Yet it's also expanded to several other cities, including... Guess where? We opened the Huntsville office, I think it was 12 years ago. She says the two communities have been hubs for both private sector and military space work for a long time now. I was working with the airport many years ago to try to see if we could get a direct flight from Huntsville to Colorado Springs. So while she thought Colorado would be the front runner for the permanent home of Space Command, she acknowledges Alabama is a major player too. The Army's Redstone Arsenal is the base near Huntsville where Space Command would move. It hosts a number of major military aerospace missions already, including the Missile Defense Agency and Army Space and Missile Defense Command. NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center is also there. The mood here in Alabama was pretty confident, too. Journalist Lee Roop reports on Alabama's aerospace sector for the statewide news service AL.com. 
Colorado politicians argue Trump's choice of Alabama couldn't possibly be justified, saying the military space installations already here align much more closely with the work done at Space Command. Well, Roop says folks in Huntsville are decidedly not shaking in their boots after the Defense Department's announcement that they're going to investigate this election. Uh, no, No, I don't think so at all. And in typical Alabama fashion, he brings up the Crimson Tide. Well, our football coach down here, uh, Nick Saban, you know, he always says, trust the process and you'll get where you want to go. And so there's a process and they felt confident about the process. Though it's not like Huntsville is seeing any sort of explosion in local aerospace investment from the Space Command announcement, at least not yet. The earliest the city would be taking over Space Command would be 2026 to allow Redstone Arsenal to build the necessary facilities to house it. And that could take even longer than 2026, not to mention the hundreds of millions of dollars it's likely to cost. Roop expects the DOD's investigation to delay that timing even further. So the question becomes, if Space Command does in fact move to Alabama, whither Colorado's aerospace superiority? Retired Air Force General John Barry says, no way. Will it hurt? Yeah, it'll be a little bit of a stigma, but uh, will it prevent us from being able to continue with the aspect of trying to put Colorado as a, maybe the number one aerospace state in the nation? I don't think so. Today, Barry is the president and CEO of Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in Denver. More than a year and a half ago, the museum spearheaded a campaign to popularize the term aerospace alley, referring to the burgeoning industry in Colorado. He says the majority of the state's 500 aerospace companies have 10 or fewer employees. It kind of reminds me of what Silicon Valley must have been like when the industry started out back there with small companies and people working in garages and things like that. U.S. Space Command is important, and where it's headquartered is symbolic. But the mission itself is not enormous. It's about 1,400 jobs right now. If the command moves there will still be plenty of aerospace work done in Colorado. And Alabama journalist Lee Roop says if the command stays in Colorado, same goes for his state. People here really want the command to come, and we're very excited about it. But it'll be okay. It'll be okay any way it turns out. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. The former crew of the USS Pueblo and their families will get more than $2 billion in damages for the pain and suffering the crew endured while imprisoned in North Korea more than 50 years ago. The U.S. naval ship is named after Pueblo, Colorado, and it was seized by North Korea in 1968. Eighty-two Americans were taken prisoner and tortured, beaten, and used for North Korean propaganda for 11 months. The capture is known as the Pueblo Incident. The brave seamen of our people's army captured Pueblo, the armed spy ship of the U.S. imperialists, which was conducting espionage in our territorial waters, and over 80 aggressors on board a ship. It was a severe punishment to the U.S. imperialist aggressors who violated the sovereignty of our country. That's from a North Korean propaganda video. Jack Cheevers is the author of An Act of War, Lyndon Johnson, North Korea, and the Capture of the Spy Ship USS Pueblo.
its mission in North Korea was to uh, try to tune in on coastal radar and radio stations and try to pinpoint them uh, so that in the event of war between the United States and North Korea, our aircraft and ships would be able to target those uh, installations. It was uh, essentially unprotected. It was sent on its mission without any sort of um, aircraft, uh, combat aircraft to protect it. There were no, you know, uh, Navy destroyers or over the horizon to uh, rush in in the in the event of an emergency. Uh, and it was uh, it was packed to the gunnels with top secret equipment, uh, different kinds of uh, code machines, all sorts of secret messages that uh, had been sent to the ship by uh, other Navy commands. And it was quite a prize actually, for the North Koreans to capture it. Colorado Matters spoke with Cheevers in 2018. He said most of the crew were young sailors. Some of them were highly trained communications technicians who spoke North Korean and Russian. It was in international waters when it was suddenly surrounded by um, uh, four North Korean PT boats and two North Korean sub-chasers, uh, both armed with uh, 57-millimeter cannon. The PT boats, of course, had torpedoes as well as machine guns. And there were two MiG jet fighters overhead, and the Pueblo had very little to defend itself with. It had 250-caliber machine guns, and uh, the North Koreans were firing uh, their machine guns at them. They were pumping cannon shells into the ship. There were holes in the ship everywhere. Uh, one of the men was uh, was hit in the groin by a, a cannon shell. Basically, his, his leg was all but severed. Uh, there were 10 other people who were wounded, including the captain who was hit by shrapnel. So he finally decided to stop, and the North Koreans boarded and, and captured the Pueblo at that point. The crew was held by North Korea for nearly a year. They were subjected to all sorts of uh, physical torture, all sorts of psychological pressure. They were forced to write false confessions. They were forced to write letters home to their relatives saying, you know, please lobby the U.S. government to make an apology to North Korea so we can come home. They're threatening to kill us. They were beaten with rifle butts. They were uh, thrown downstairs. They were starved. They were finally released and came home on Christmas Eve 1968. And as we said, now more than 50 years after their capture, a federal court has awarded crew members and their families more than $2 billion in damages. The USS Pueblo itself is still held by North Korea. The Pueblo is unfortunately not a very well-known story uh, among most Americans. Uh, and there's been no you know, groundswell of public opinion uh, to demand its return. Um, and even if there was, I'm not sure the North Koreans would be willing to give it up. It's a huge propaganda prize that they use as, as basically a uh, war memorial museum to condemn Americans and, and condemn the, you know, the imperialist aggressors uh, that, it, that they claim attacked North Korea, uh, which, of course, is not the case. Our thanks to Jack Cheevers for that context. He wrote An Act of War, Lyndon Johnson, North Korea, and the Capture of the Spy Ship USS Pueblo. We spoke in 2018. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you 
gave in the last member drive, you already know how much your gift matters to this station. Your gift not only strengthens local journalism right in your community, it also helps fund national reporting all over the world. So we just wanted to say... Obrigado. Salamat po. Kamsamnida. Muchisimas gracias. Shukran jazilan. Spasibo. Grazie. Arigato gozaimasu. Danyavad. Toda raba. Merci beaucoup. Gerajup. Merci ktir. Shishitaja. Thank you from all of us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Will. It's everything air controllers don't want to hear. Yeah, you know, Denver, uh, departure United 328 Heavy, Mayday aircraft, uh, just experienced a engine failure, need to turn immediately. Yeah, 328 Heavy, left or right turn? Uh, left turn. It was a terrifying time for passengers on a United Airlines Boeing 777 last month. An engine burst into flames shortly after the flight left DIA bound for Honolulu. It was scary, too, for residents of Denver's northern suburbs as debris from the engine landed in their neighborhoods. The plane made that left turn back to DIA and landed without any injuries. Now let's check in on the investigation into that crash and look forward to the airline's industry's future with aviation consultant Mike Boyd of Evergreen. Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you. What is the suspected cause here? It's probably a fan blade that uh, had some fatigue, broke loose, and took some of the engine with it. It's not unheard of, but it's very, very rare. And this is a dramatic video. I'll I'll note that the plane here was built by Boeing, but what was really at issue here is the engine, and that was built by Pratt & Whitney. Like we said, it is not every day a plane parts fall from the sky. You say that this is rare. How often does something similar happen? Well, it's often enough that we can know about it. And it's, you know, you know there was one over uh, from New York City with Southwest that happened a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a, a 380, a big 500-seat airplane that happened up over Japan. It's very, very rare. And, it, and it, the other thing is different types of engines. The engines on this airplane uh, over Broomfield was a Pratt Whitney 4077, which is different than a Pratt Whitney 4090. So we're talking about a very specific engine that they're looking at. And obviously it is early days, but any idea what can cause that sort of metal fatigue? Just metal fatigue and the fact our airplanes are made and operated by the hand of man. Those things can happen. But now when these things happen, those engines are going to be a lot safer because they're going to be looking for that same type of failure, not only on those types of engines, but are they, is it something that could happen in other types of engines? So this actually enhances safety. I'm I'm sorry it had to be done at the expense of someone's Hawaii vacation, but we're better off today than we were two weeks ago. Does age have anything to do with that sort of, that sort of falling off of the plane? Oh, 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 sure. I mean, metal, metal, like the rest of us start to go south after a while, you know, as we age, but um, if they keep up with airplanes where, you know, I'll make the argument, if we took care of our cars, like they take care, like United takes care of airplanes, we'd still be driving 57 Chevy. <laughs> and what step, steps has the federal government taken so far to deal with this? Well, when you're dealing with the NTSB, and I'm talking about the NTSB, you're dealing with magicians. These people can look at a scratch and say, aha, now I know. So they'll be looking at every possible aspect, not only on these types of engines, but it could happen elsewhere. Uh, what, what is the history of that engine? What are the number of cycles, landing, the takeoffs? They'll be looking at all that right down. And, you know, I mean, right now today, you know, keep in mind, this isn't killing United Airlines. There's 22 of those airplanes that they've grounded, but Amer- United was only flying about four of them at the time. And the rest of the fleet is 560 airplanes. So 
we're not going to be convenienced here at DIA. And when you say the NTSB, you're talking about the National Transportation Safety Board, and that's the body that investigates incidents like this or plane crashes as well. Um, there's been no allegations involving the United flight or anything like that. But in general, when an industry is hit like that, do you worry that there may be shortcuts in safety? No, not 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 on U.S. carriers. Not at all. I mean, people, you know, U.S. carriers understand that safety is an investment. It's not a cost uh, because the safer you are, the, you know, the better your airline is going to be and the more money you're going to make if you're safe. But any kind of cutting corners. And again, look, 30 years ago, we had a commuter airline industry that there were some real players in it that probably should be in jail today. But but that's gone. We have a very safe air transportation system. Now, you make a living of analyzing the aviation industry as a whole. I mean, the skies and the airports basically emptied for much of last year. Can you give me a sense of the economic damage the pandemic has caused? Oh, it's incredible. When you, you know, back 40 years ago, making $40 million a year was huge. Now airlines were starting to lose $40 million a day. So it, it is huge because we have an air transportation system that was designed for what we saw in January of 2019. And that industry is gone. That consumer base is gone. That international traffic has changed. And airlines are going to have to restructure. And they're doing it right now very, I think, very aggressively to restructure for a new type of air transportation system. But they're still losing tens of millions a day. I hear you saying gone and not just on pause. What makes you think that the industry is totally restructuring? Well, keep in mind, a lot of things have changed. Look, we're sitting here talking instead of one-on-one. We're talking over some sort of a electronic system. We've had... In meetings right now, people are finding more and more that, that trend toward meetings over with Google or with Zoom or with Microsoft Team really can make some pretty good sense. Now, you can't meet people, you can't network with it, but there's a whole chunk of things you don't need to do by getting on an airplane, going through security, having a two-hour meeting in New York and flying home. That was a dynamic that was already in starting in place. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, there were 40,000 people that flew between Hartford, Connecticut and New York City. Today, there's nobody. They don't need to do it anymore. So we're seeing a lot of sense in meetings that aren't necessarily in person. What about other kinds of travel? How is leisure traffic? How do you see that changing in the future? Well, the good news is you cannot electronically run on the beach. That's been tried. It does not work. So you have to to do it on the basis of going somewhere. And when you have a, a state like Florida that's wide open, a lot of people want to go there. I mean, you have airlines today that are looking at vacation destinations a year ago, literally, they couldn't pronounce. Um, American Airlines this summer is going to be flying to Nantucket. And I guarantee you, a year ago, to them, that was just a word in a limerick. They had no idea where the place was. <laughs> so which is better for airline profits, business or leisure travel? Oh, business is always better because you have to be there. My, my vacation, I can adjust it to get a better fare or a better hotel room, whatever. But you can't do that with business. But it's going to be a very different thing. And the other issue is that, remember, 31% of all traffic at U.S. airports overall was driven by international traffic, international directly or indirectly. You know, the businessman who flies into Detroit then takes another flight on to Omaha. Those, that, act, that was huge. That's down to, a, we, we think that's down now to about 12%. It's going to drop further. And some markets like U.S. China, where you had almost 10 million people, That'll be less, well under a million people almost permanently now. So we got to adjust for that as well. How do you think airlines will reorganize to meet that difference in demand? Well, this is the first time, and I'm in this business longer than I'm going to tell you since 1971, 
And I grew up in the business. My father was a VP at American. I mean, I've seen this business, but I've never seen this business with the kind of management that we have today at virtually all carriers. They're different, but they know what they're doing and they're making huge adjustments to fleets, to fares, to route systems. They're not sitting on their hands. They're moving very quickly. So I, we're going to have a healthier air transportation system, but it's going to be a little bit different, a little more, a little less focused on business travel, a lot less focused on short haul traffic and more of what we call road hubbing. You know, you know, some, some of these smaller communities are going to have less air service than they did before because people can drive to Kansas City rather than fly out of Topeka. As a consumer, just someone who typically flies for a mix of business and pleasure, how is my experience with the airline going to change over the next few years? Will there be a difference in terms of prices or flight options? There's some really good news coming, and it's nothing, nothing to do per se with this. But keep in mind, most of our airports were built for a system that doesn't exist anymore. Ticket counters. There's no more tickets. What do we need a ticket counter for? A processing before you, in front of a, a, a service counter. We do everything by our cell phone today. And that's why, you know, Denver International is at the core, the forefront of this with their re, reorganization program, they're, what they're doing to the, the airport. They're adjusting for a future where we're not going to need ticket counters. We're not going to need lines. We're not going to necessarily even bag check positions anymore because it's going to be so much easier to go through airports because we're going to do it on our cell phone. Does that mean the airline employment, a lot of people are going to be out of work? Well, a lot of people already out of work. Keep in mind, these bailouts we've had twice now since this COVID situation were for employees that airlines didn't need. And we're paying them a payroll. That's great. But we're not going to grow back to the number of air, airline employees we needed before. And that, that's been accelerated by the pandemic. But again, uh, we have ticket counters. We don't need ticket counters for people to work them anymore. Uh, a lot of other things have been farmed out or just not needed anymore. When was the last time you had a meal on an airplane you didn't like? You, you don't have them anymore. Hmm. So you're anticipating it. Even as air, airlines recover, they may not add back all the jobs at the airports. Your predictions also show that traffic growing in some mid-sized cities like Colorado Springs. Why is air traffic growing in cities like that? Well, air, air, there's several things happening. One, we have the, the vacation destinations that are growing. But other markets like Colorado Springs, these are places where businesses are moving. Colorado Springs, Boise, uh, Spokane, places like that. Small, you know, or even global businesses are saying, I don't need 12 floors of office space in midtown Manhattan when I can have you know, 8,000 square feet of a really neat command center in Colorado Springs. This isn't going to turn midtown Manhattan into a ghost town, but there's enough of it where people are saying, hey, Colorado Springs is a good quality of life. I'm moving there. And that's what's starting to happen. Colorado Springs, for example, 30 years ago, was this a tag onto Denver? Was this another gateway to Denver? Now it stands on its own and it's going to continue to grow. You ain't seen nothing yet. Are there other cities in Colorado where you expect air traffic to grow? Yeah, yeah we're going to see certainly Grand Junction. Uh, Grand Junction has been kind of asleep at the switch in terms of what they could be. I mean, it, it's an easier air gateway to both the Vale Valley and Aspen than Denver is because you don't have to go over passes. I think they're starting to recognize that now. Uh, and then Durango. Now, Durango is a little bit different, but uh, a few years ago, the, the ski area, the purgatory, subsidized some air service into Durango from Houston. And what they found out, they weren't getting skiers on the airplane. It was chock-a-block with business travelers. And I think Durango is another one that we're going to have to watch. It's not going to grow as rapidly as Colorado Springs, but it's going to be a, a quality of life issue because you don't have to have physical proximity for a lot of work. So I don't have to be in midtown Manhattan to do business. I could do it in Durango.
And that actually brings us to remote work. How do you think that people's ability to work remotely will change the way the air traffic shifts if people move from big cities to the middle of the country? It's going to change a lot of things in terms of, like I said, I mean, you know, if you have a business that had you know, 300 people in New York City or in the Environs and they're moving, you know, three quarters of them to other places, that's going to cause sort of an air travel diaspora, if you will. And it's going to change how, you know, like New York City is not going to grow dramatically. There's there's no way out of that because p- businesses are going to move out. The place is just a little difficult at the present time and for the future. But that also means that um, we're going to have to find other ways because a, a, a lot of these smaller communities aren't going to get mm. anywhere near the air service that they're used to. I mean, air transportation is time definite. You have four flights a day. You got to match your, yourself to those four flights to the small community. And that's why it's hard to support it there. But again, mm-hmm. it's going to be a mix between that and people talking over electronic There's a lot airways. to change. Thank you so much, Mike. Mike Boyd is president of Boyd International, an aviation forecasting and consulting group based in Evergreen. Businesses that rely on Colorado's travel and leisure industry have been particularly hard hit in the pandemic. CPR's Sarah Mulholland spoke with business owners in some mountain towns about how they're coping almost a year after the first shutdowns hit. John Lamp employs about 20 people, a dozen mules, and one horse running sleigh rides out of Frisco. The pandemic poses unique challenges for Lamp, not the least of which is he can't use his heavy windproof blankets to keep customers warm. People have gotten used to things like that in the in the world we live in now. I, I would have never thought the day would come where you couldn't supply blankets. Typically, his winter business revolves around dinner in a giant canvas tent. The operation includes cooks, people who take reservations, and the sleigh drivers, who double as waiters. In good years, Lamp serves 500 people a day. We had a good season until the pandemic hit last year in March. But when the pandemic shut dinner rides down, Lamp had to fall back on smaller scenic rides. Instead of a meal, guests take in the view of the mountains with a cup of hot cocoa. Scenic rides don't make it up totally, and the scenic rides were, you know, down at certain points, too. Revenues dropped 70 percent. And Lamp isn't alone. He's part of the vast network of business owners that rely on tourism in the state's mountain towns. According to the Colorado Tourism Office, traveler spending has been cut in half since the pandemic started. You know, it's been challenging to keep employees working and trying to find creative ways to keep them afloat while also trying to keep yourself afloat. Lamp hasn't had to lay off longtime employees, but his winter staff is smaller than usual, and it's been difficult to plan ahead. Week to week, a lot of times you didn't know what the rules were going to be. Lamp was able to do his first dinner sleigh ride in almost a year when Summit County eased restrictions on indoor dining a few weeks ago. He's now allowed to operate at 25 percent capacity. If you're over a certain amount of people in your group, you have to be separated at the tables. And so people aren't big on that, but they understand it. Kate Watkins is the chief economist for Colorado State Legislature. She says the damage to restaurants, hotels, and other service-oriented businesses is happening across the state. Colorado lost more than 36,000 jobs in leisure and hospitality in December alone. But it can hit mountain towns harder because there isn't always a lot of other economic activity. It can be certainly very devastating for these communities if, if 
if their lifeblood is leisure and hospitality, uh, then, then this is leaving a real hole in, in their economic communities. The pandemic has helped amp up Colorado's outdoorsy appeal, drawing visitors to certain spots. But a lot of people still aren't comfortable getting on a plane. And international visitation is basically non-existent. A half hour down the road from Frisco, in Eagle County, Andy Kaufman owns the Minturn Saloon. It's the terminus of the Minturn Mile, a popular backcountry ski route that starts at the top of Vail Mountain. I didn't see a path forward last March and April. I was truly feeling like an existential issue. He thinks he's through the worst of it. His business was able to survive and retain staff through the spring with a federal loan, and outdoor riverside seating saved them during the summer months. They've winterized the deck somewhat, and there's a roomy dining area for social distancing. He says if he didn't have outdoor seating and a large indoor space, the business might not be around today. There are many wonderful restaurants who just don't have that space. And if you don't, you don't. And it doesn't matter how good of an operator or how good your food is. If you don't have the space, you're not going to be able to exist. Kaufman says he's one of the lucky ones. Still, he's running with a pared-down staff, whereas in the past he might have three or four waiters on a busy night. Now there's only two. And instead of having two bartenders over the course of an evening, there's only one. And there's no host. Kaufman sometimes has to turn people away who show up without a reservation looking for the classic après ski experience. You know, everybody misses that feeling of being in a lively crowd, but this too shall pass. Kaufman is feeling optimistic heading into the spring ski season and is looking forward to the day when anybody can pull a stool up to the bar. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. The state's unemployment system can be confusing. If you're not getting benefits, it could be because you're not eligible or because you're still waiting in the queue. Or often enough, you did everything right and the system is just broken. I think there is so little communication and people think that their issues, they may be the only ones having it or that nobody's trying anything. That's unemployment advocate Erin Joy Swank. People are on hold for 90 minutes and then they're hung up on. This average call time of an hour 13, I'm like, well, I know people that were waiting more than two hours, so there really were some people that got faster than that? Okay. Swank is hopeful that a new online dashboard launched by the state labor department to try to reduce confusion and frustration will make a difference. You know, if your issue's on there, you at least know that somebody's looking at it, they're trying to fix it. Joe Barella is executive director of the state labor department. You know, I think our goal is to be as transparent as possible to people who are needing information when they're trying to navigate uh, the unemployment insurance system in Colorado. And I think going through, you know, not only state unemployment insurance, but the several federal programs we've implemented in 2020, um, what we have now in the first part of 2021, and then the pending stimulus uh, with the Biden administration hopefully coming out soon, um, We want to make sure that people know what's happening in the system and realize that, you know, a lot of these aren't just simple extensions. They're program uh, issues that involve eligibility, identification, verification, and requirements that are being put on place, really as uh, the federal government and states build the plane as we're flying it. 
Barella expects the dashboard will go through several iterations as it's improved and they get feedback. The dashboard lists known glitches and their status, along with information about wait times at the call center. You know, we find issues that cause payment delays and we want to let people know we're aware of this issue. It's been resolved or we're aware of this issue. A fix is in place. It'll be deployed um, and and try to give people some expectations uh, of what the system is doing and and when they may be experiencing some trouble in the system, when they could expect that to be resolved so that they're not constantly feeling like they have to call into the call center. Because believe me, if if, if someone's having an issue in in the system, we probably have some other people in the same scenario. Joe Barella is executive director of the State Labor Department. The department recently launched a new dashboard on its website to better communicate call wait times, glitches, and other issues that have been causing frustration among people trying to get information about unemployment benefits. A retired delivery contractor in Colorado is locked in a months-long battle with scammers who are trying to defraud the unemployment system. As CPR's Andrew Kinney reports, his story reveals how hard it is to stop people from taking advantage of benefits that are meant to help Coloradans out of work in the recession. Now, this is my mail slot right here. This is where the mail should come in through the outside. This is Phil Jubik. We're on a video call, and he's showing me how he gets his mail at his home in Pueblo, because something unusual has been happening here for the last couple months. Lately, Jubik's mail won't actually fit through the slot at his door. Instead, he finds thick stacks on his front step, wrapped in rubber bands. When I get some of the stacks, they'll be piled there by my muddy work boots. Almost every letter is from the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. And as he explained in an earlier phone interview, there can be dozens. Actually, dozens would be easy to handle. It's when I receive 95 in one day that uh, they get a little difficult. (laughs) Each one represents an unemployment claim. Someone who is asking the state of Colorado to pay them unemployment benefits by claiming that they were laid off by this same guy, Phil Jubik. I have gotten these claims for a chemist a chemical engineer, a uh, head chef, a uh, boat engineer, a dentist. In reality, Jubik's the retired owner of a one-man delivery business. He has two corporations registered in his name, but he's never had a real employee. These people put down that they work 10 hours a week for me, up to 72 hours a week for me. This is part of a national wave of fake unemployment claims. If no one notices, scammers can collect thousands of dollars per week from the government for each one. And someone has started using details about Jubik's corporations in their scheme. At first, he didn't know how it was possible. Kind of, It's strange, but you know, I couldn't figure out how they could just make up names and uh, social security numbers and stuff, and that would get through the system. But he realized these identities in his mail aren't made up. They're real. Okay, here. Mays, Ferguson, Duncan. When he Googled one name, he found a match in Illinois. Schmierden, Hawkins, Gerritsen. He's counted more than two dozen different identities. The same names appear again and again. Uh, Dwayne Lowe. She was one of my first. Uh. (laughs) He laughs, but this stuff can have significant consequences. The person whose identity was stolen could be locked out of the unemployment system when they need it. Someone named as their employer, even if it's fake, like in Phil Jubik's case, could be billed for the benefits if the fraud isn't caught. I was worried about the repercussions to me and my family. You know, if the state comes back on me for these claims, takes my money, then it's me that's, you know, I'm out in the street. 
Scammers are building these fraudulent identities using personal information that was stolen in data breaches like the one at Equifax. Colorado officials have counted more than a million suspected fakes. Here's Andrew Stetner, an expert in unemployment with the Century Foundation. So they have enough information to file something as, you know, John Smith in Seattle, Washington, based on your address, based on your social, your birth date, and your phone number. And there's a huge financial incentive, since the federal government has pumped billions of dollars into unemployment systems that were not really designed to catch these kind of wholesale stolen identities. So it's become this target, you know, this you know, weak link. Colorado estimates that it's lost about $4 million to unemployment fraud, but other states are reporting far higher numbers. In California, it's $11 billion. Phil Jubik is fighting back by sending every contested claim back to the Labor Department. He even bought his own fax machine to speed it up, even though the lack of a response kind of makes him feel crazy. All the instructions and videos said, make sure the faxes are facing up when you send them. I'm like, maybe I've just been sending blank sheets. I don't know. So, <laughs> The state says they are making improvements. They have an online forum for reporting fraud now, and they're searching for suspicious patterns to stop fraudulent applications. And in the long run, governments will fundamentally change how they verify people's identities. Birth dates and social security numbers and mother's maiden names are obsolete. Instead, applicants in Colorado will soon have to use things like video selfies to prove who they are. For now, though, Phil Jubik's gotten used to seeing all those familiar stolen names in his mail. They're like old friends, the names and stuff. So, I mean, it, I, I really, I mean, the anger's gone. I mean, it's just, it's just something I do now. He hasn't gotten any bills from the Labor Department yet, and the letters have started to slow down a little bit, at least this week. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to the team that brings this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play podcast Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.